tonight. This is number six in this series of seven less of twelve lessons on the tactics of Satan. Our lesson tonight is really another facet of the one that we featured two weeks ago on Satan's tactic of deception. I pointed out then that a lie is that which is not real or that which does not exist. Deception is the effort to persuade others to believe a lie and lead them to accept that as truth which is not real or not existent. Tonight's interest goes beyond that to the object of deception. Its purpose is to prevent people from knowing the truth. If they can be persuaded to believe a lie, they will not know the truth. And that's what ignorance is. If you do not know something, you're ignorant of that bit of truth or reality. We're all ignorant of a great deal in the world about us because we've never been informed about everything or had significant experience with everything. But there are other areas of truth and reality that we know well and have some skill in. The wider and more experienced in life a person is, the less ignorant the person is. A lot of people do not care to know much beyond what is necessary for daily business. And up to a point, that's okay. But the less we know, the more it makes it dependent, us dependent upon those who do know. For example, I know very little about auto mechanics. And so it costs me a lot of money when something breaks or goes wrong and I have to hire a mechanic to fix it. Because life is wide and complex, no one knows everything. And that brings on problems, problems of finance, of inconvenience, of lost time, and sometimes injury and occasionally even death. I'm glad there are people who know what I do not know and can help me across problems due to ignorance in those things. And when people do not know what I have been blessed to learn, I'm very glad to help them across any kind of difficulty they have in that to where they need to be in a good condition. The word know, of course, refers to knowledge, the storage in your mind of information that's true, that accords with reality. And first, <clears throat> the information is external. It's outside of us, out there in the world. Education is the process of introducing that information into the chambers of your mind and lodging it there. That can be accomplished inside of a classroom for some kinds of knowledge. I was involved in that for 42 years. But other kinds of knowledge are only acquired in the world of experience, and that's necessary and very good. The worst ignorance is not that of the physical world 
and daily experience, but rather that of spiritual matters, especially those that involve our soul and our eternal existence. I am unable to work on the microcircuits inside of a computer, but that will not matter a bit when I have to come before God in judgment and give account. The same is true if I do not know the economics necessary to be the CEO of a major corporation. What is essentially important here and now is knowing God, knowing his will revealed to us in scripture, and knowing how to live from day to day to please him. That's what we will be held accountable for in the judgment, and that's what will determine our eternal destiny. God has graciously revealed to us all that we need to know to prepare ourselves for that awesome day of, of, giving, of giving account. We're told in 2 Peter 1 verse 3 that God has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. If anyone gets in the way of our receiving that true knowledge and having it planted firmly and permanently in our minds and understanding, then we will not attain the life and godliness that God has created us for and wants us to have. The word life in Peter's statement here actually means eternal life in heaven. And the word godliness refers to a state of mind in which God is held in the highest reverence and is the only mental state that is fit to live in heaven. To be lacking this knowledge that gives us life and godliness is what the Bible means when it speaks of ignorance. And that's what our lesson is about tonight, Satan's tactic of leading us and keeping us in ignorance. To be ignorant, therefore, is destructive. It destroys the soul because it will, in the end, deprive your soul of eternal life. And so we read in Hosea verse 4 and verse 6, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you, and he was speaking to the Israelite people, because you have rejected knowledge, I will also reject you. And surely God who doesn't change will do the same today. And this is where Satan enters the arena of human activity because his goal is always to destroy people's souls any way that he can. He uses many tactics and strategies, and of course it's the purpose of this series of lessons to expose them so that we can hopefully understand them and deal with them successfully. And encouraging ignorance is another of Satan's best tools in ruining people. As long as we do not know God and do not know his will and do not know how to please him in our lives, Satan has got us firmly in his grip. 
for many reasons. He finds it easy to make us ignorant and to keep us ignorant and in his realm. These reasons have to do really with prevailing human nature, which Satan can read perfectly. Believe it, Satan knows how you think. He knows what you like. He knows your habits. He knows your feelings. He knows how you respond to different situations. He's a spirit. He's all around us. He knows how to take advantage of human nature and manipulate it to keep us ignorant and foolish and morally blind. And when we're in that condition, we're, we're comfortable. We think it's normal. He keeps a screen, or tries to, between us and God, God's truth, so that we will remain in this pathetic condition of blind ignorance. Let's take a brief example for illustration. On the night before the crucifixion, the apostles disputed. They were having a big argument about which one of them was the greatest. Jesus reproved them for this. He told them the greatest among you is the one who is the biggest servant of all the rest. Had they not been ignorant of that truth, they would not have been arguing that night or that day. It seems evident that Peter was especially vocal in this argument because Jesus singled him out for a, spe for a special warning. In Luke 22:31, he said to him, Simon, Simon, Peter's Hebrew name, Satan has demanded permission, actually demanded per uh, permission, to sift you like wheat. Peter thought he was a tire of strength, but Jesus told him, you're not. You're as helpless as wheat or wheat flour in a sifter. When you try to go up against the devil yourself, as Martin Luther said in the song, uh, the mighty fortress is our God, that we're up against a person that we cannot beat or even begin to overcome on our own. We need God's help. But Peter that night stood up for himself and he said, no, Lord, I'm ready both to go with you to prison and to death. And that reminds me of an ancient proverb in the Old Testament. One who is putting on his armor should not boast like one who is taking it off. After that night's ordeal, Peter didn't have a thing to brag about. Instead, we're told that he went out into solitude later that night and wept bitterly in shame at his great, great failure. Jesus forewarned him about this when he said, I tell you, Peter, the cock will not crow today until you have denied three times that you know me. You who said you would die with me, you'll deny me three times. That night, you see, Satan was using the foolishness of ignorance to turn Peter's self-confidence and pride into a plaything in the devil's hand, leading him to denial 
and in the third denial, beyond that, even to blaspheming. I've said that Satan finds it rather easy to keep people ignorant because he knows human nature thoroughly. Ignorance has an awful lot to do with how people think and react to the situations of life that confront us. A great deal of thought has been given to this in the past, and I mean centuries past, and it's led to the identification of three areas or types of ignorance to which names have been given. The first is invincible ignorance, the second is willful ignorance, and the third is voluntary ignorance. Now the first of them, invincible ignorance, is that which is due to never having been taught or never having experienced something. Example, the American Indians, when the, or before the white men arrived, had never heard of the Bible, of sin or righteousness, of Christ as Savior, when white man first reached them. You see, take, Satan takes advantage of this kind of a situation by trying to keep knowledge from those who have never learned or experienced and then hold them bound in that ignorance because they're his. He puts obstruction in the way of the church sending missionaries to teach them. The list of obstructions is very long. That's a subject by itself. The Great Commission of Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, makes it the pressing responsibility of the church never to quit trying as zealously as possible to get the gospel to people who have never heard it and don't know it. And folks, there's large areas of the church we've never been in. We just go to the places that's easy and comfortable to get to and that will receive us. But the millions, hundreds of millions, dying in other places that it's difficult to get to, we just ignore it. The second category of ignorance, willful ignorance, results when people have the knowledge laid out before them, but constantly refuse to accept it. There are people who have surrendered their will to Satan who sustains their stubbornness and keeps them from wanting to learn. There's a very clear case of this in Scripture. If you want to kind of look at it as I go along, it's in Jeremiah chapter 36. When God commanded Jeremiah to write a message to the people of Judah about the deep sin into which they had sunk and where it was taking them rather rapidly if they did not repent, the prophet did that. And then he had the scribe, who was, I guess, his secretary, a man named Baruch, to read it in the temple. And he did that very courageously. And it caused quite a sensation. And soon King Jehoiakim heard about it. And he sent a man by the name of Yehudi to, to, to fetch this scroll and bring it in to him so he could hear it read. Then he had Yehudi, when he brought it in, to read it to him. And at this point, I'm just going to the text. 
Jeremiah 38, verses 22 through 25. It says, the king was sitting in the winter house in the ninth month with a fire burning in the brazier before him like a metal open oven or fire or fireplace. And it came about when Yehudi had read three or four columns, and that was on a roll and being turned like this, when he had read three or four columns, the king would cut it with a, a scribe's knife and threw the cut part into the fire on the brazier and burned it up. He was burning God's word. God had given this to Jeremiah. Jeremiah had, had it written. It was God's word, but he was burning it. And he did it until the whole roll was consumed in the fire. And it says that yet the king and all his servants <clears throat> who heard all these words were not afraid, nor did they rend their garments, even though Elnathan, Delaiah, and Gemariah entreated the king not to burn the scroll. But he would not listen to them. Although King Jehoiakim burned that scroll containing the word of God, it was Satan within him that was motivating him. You see, this king had already given his heart and soul and mind to the devil, and he was doing the deeds of the devil. That's what John's, uh, Jesus said in John 8. If you make the devil your father, you'll do his deeds. Since the Bible was completed, about the year 100 A.D., men in Satan's service have repeatedly burned copies of the Bible to try to keep its message from the people and hold them in ignorance so that they will belong to Satan. Even in our country, the Bible today is banned from the public classroom. It's shunned by the, per, by the public media. In the last two or three years, the Bible has even come to be called hate speech in the media. The Bible, because Satan permeates our government, and to a great extent, he is in control of our government. Certain parts of our government are in his hands right now, and there is a strong effort in progress a very strong effort to extend this ban into private life. And if that succeeds, it will be right inside the church building. I mean, there's even efforts now to ban speaking against certain topics in a church building. The third category of ignorance is that of indifference and apathy. A great many people are not antagonistic to the Bible. Uh, they think of it as the good book, they call it that, but they really have little interest in it. They don't read it. They don't have any motivation to apply it to their lives. And Satan is absolutely delighted with that situation because what does it do? When people don't read the Bible or don't listen to it, they're ignorant of it. And when people do not know the difference between good and evil, and the Bible is really the only thing that tells us that, and when they have no motivation <clears throat> to choose what is good and reject what is evil, 
they're right where Satan wants to be. He's got them in his hand, and he's working through them. He's glad whenever a person among us is hostile to God and his will. Someone who is very vocal and aggressive against religion, but the ignorance that is due to indifference gains service in mass and allows hate of Satan to hold them firmly there. And folks, that's true of masses of people about us. I could give you a lot of statistics here, but it'd take up time. Through the prophet, God addressed people who were ignorant due to apathy. In Isaiah 1 and verse 3, this is something to think about. He said, an ox knows its owner, and its master, and a donkey rather, its master's manger. But Israel does not know me, and my people do not understand. What he was really telling them is, you're dumber than an ox and a donkey. Pretty powerful, isn't it? In the next verse, verse 4 of Isaiah 1, God revealed the consequences of this ignorance. Folks, ignorance isn't harmless. It leads to bad results. So how, what are the consequences here? He told Israel, you're a sinful nation. You're a people weighed down with iniquity. You're sons who act corruptly. You have abandoned the Lord. You have turned away from him. Folks, that's what ignorance does to anybody. Of these three categories of ignorance that I've just rehearsed with you, I'm convinced that the one that is the worst, they're all bad, but the worst is the last one mentioned. Ignorance that is due to apathy and indifference because it has the human will in it. It's willful. That which is due to never having God's word, never having heard and learned God's word is pitiful and sad, but yet it's to Satan's advantage that due to willful rejection of God's word is serious, grievous, dangerous, and those who choose it become devoted servants of Satan. But people who are apathetic and indifferent are in Satan's grip, and they don't know it. They've given themselves to Satan willfully and don't even realize it. You say something to them about it, they'll laugh in your face. As an old song went, they're cruising down the river on a Sunday afternoon. You have to be near my age to remember that song. They're enjoying the beauty and the comfort of daily life, and they are not aware that ahead on that beautiful river, placid and serene and beautiful, is a 500-foot waterfall. It's just as God said through the prophet in Hosea 4 and verse 6, my people are destroyed for the lack of knowledge. Believe it, God says so. Ignorance will destroy you. Apathetic ignorance is just as spiritually deadly as willful ignorance. Both kinds are tools of Satan to destroy. If you lay your hand on a 220-volt wire, it will kill you just as dead 
whether you grabbed it willfully or carelessly. In July of 1964, I conducted the funeral at Madison Church Christ of a man who carelessly grabbed hold of a 220-volt wire at Dixon County High School where he was working. He did it carelessly, but it killed him just as much as if he had deliberately grabbed it. It's important to ask, why are people indifferent and apathetic toward the Bible? There are many reasons. It would take a long lesson to lay them all out, explain them, and illustrate them. However, they're mostly encompassed in one New Testament term, worldliness. We're told clearly what worldliness is. In 1 Timothy, uh, rather 1 John 2, 6, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the boastful pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. The lust of the flesh refers to feeling and physical sensation. We're told by hedonists, and there's plenty of those around, if it feels good, whatever it is, just do it. Drink that alcohol, fornicate, smoke that marijuana, sniff that heroin, race down your car or the interstate in your car at 100 miles an hour, eat till you cannot put one more bite in your mouth and swallow it. By Epicureans, and there's a lot of them around too, we're told, take your ease, eat, drink, be merry. The media advertising is always enticing us, buy this new gadget because it's gonna make your life easier and will save you time for some kind of leisure. Or it tells us, eat this new food item someone has come up with because it's delicious. It will really make you feel good. Great dining experience. Or visit this dude vacation spot that's opened up somewhere. It's absolutely beautiful. It's got everything in there to fulfill any desire to have fun that you can think of. Folks, these are the kind of feel-good things that attract people. Not sitting at a table with a Bible and Bible aids trying to learn and understand God's word. Most people look at that as drudgery. But folks, there are some people who think that is wonderful, that that's better than any entertainment. I have a recent student that I'd like to tell you about. That's her experience right now. But because we will not choose to sit at the table and spend some real quality time reading God's Word and studying it in depth. We cast ourselves into ignorance due to one form of worldliness. It's not fun. Other things are fun. The lust of the eye refers to vision. The things we see that are attractive, that thrill us, that grasp our attention, that hold us with interest. In Habakkuk 1.13, the prophet says of God, your eyes are too pure to behold evil, and you cannot look upon, right, uh, upon wickedness with favor. Then we're told in 1 Peter 1.16, this is speaking to Christians, you shall be holy, for your God is holy. It means 
that as Christians we are to try to be like God and then to be too pure of mind to look upon evil and too righteous to look upon wickedness with favor. But Satan's ability to induce ignorance often derails Christians from being holy and righteous. Scenes that are impure and wicked are very highly attractive to people. Just ban a movie and you can't keep people out of it. Many people fall to the ignorance. It doesn't hurt just to look at it. But folks, it hurts terribly just to look at it if what we're looking at is evil. That's what Jesus was referring to in, in Matthew 6, 23, when he said, if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. What's he saying? The good eye refers to a person who looks at what is pure, righteous, and wholesome whenever he can find it. A bad eye is one that looks at what is corrupt, sinful, and, moral, and demoralizing. Folks, a lot of people, rather than be here tonight, listen to this or at home watching television, laughing, drinking their beers, they watch the sports game. The light in Jesus' statement is that which fills the kingdom of light. The darkness is that which fills the kingdom of darkness. The good eye fills the soul with the light of purity and righteousness. The bad eye fills the soul with the darkness of sin and moral corruption. Now at this point, let us take a pause in this and refocus our line of thought. I've said that ignorance due to apathy and indifference is the worst that Satan encourages upon us. Then I said that there are many reasons why people are indifferent and apathetic toward the Bible. But really they're summarized in one New Testament word, worldliness, which especially affects us through the lust of the eye and the lust of the flesh. Now let's connect those thoughts to what Jesus said or to what Jesus called Satan three times in the Gospel of John. And what was that? The ruler of this world. Don't contest that. Jesus said he is. He's in control of most of it. Sometimes he calls him the ruler of this world. Satan, in fact, claims that distinction himself. He did it when he was tempting Jesus in the third temptation. In Matthew 4, verses 8 and 9, it says that the devil took him up to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these things I will give you. Folks, you can't give something if you had not got it. He said he had it. Jesus didn't call him a liar. He knew that the world was in his hands. Jesus was here to try to take it away from him. And he does it one person at a time when they come up and are baptized into Christ and become a Christian. But Satan said, I'll give you all of it if you'll just fall down and worship me. As the ruler of this world, Satan has the ability to use the things of this world, to seduce us, to follow him rather than God, and he is highly successful at it. 
His use of these things is what the New Testament calls worldliness. We're not aware of it. For the most part, our eyes are blind. We just walk along, enjoying life, entertained, besmirched, begrimed with all of it. God created really the things of this world to be good and to bless us while we live here. He wants us to have a good trip through life. But Satan encourages us, go beyond that. Become fixated with those things. Love them rather than God and use your time and energy in extracting from those things all of the pleasure you can possibly get out of it. Milk it to the last drop. He employs ignorance to make, us, to, to make us absorbed in loving the world and conniving us that this is what life is all about. We're in the world, make the best use of it. Live as possibly as possible. Run to every uh, fun venue that's out there and soak it up to the maximum. Everybody else does, and we're proud to boast of others when an entertainment spot or activity is mentioned. And we're quick to put our voice in. I've been there, I've done that, I got the t-shirt. I'll wear it next Sunday. The exaltation, this exaltation rather, is the third part of worldliness in 1 John 2:18, the boastful pride of life. Satan wants us to think that the purpose of life is pleasure and to be very proud of the measure of that pleasure that you've been able to get to and be a part of. When we appear before God in judgment, he is not going to measure us by the yardstick of this world like we do, how much we were able to indulge the lust of the flesh. How many wonders you were able to get to somewhere to see and how many trophies you were able to accumulate to express your pride in a fun-filled life. He'll rather be concerned, God willing, the day of judgment, how much did you love me when you were down there in the middle of all that? And how much of your life and energy did you take away from that to give to me in service? Jesus made this plain in a parable in Luke chapter 12 concerning man who devoted his life to getting wealthy. When his barns were just bulging with wealth, he proudly said to himself, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. That's where we all want to be. He was the epitome of a person who was saturated with Satan's ignorance, thinking that a person's life does consist in how much of this world's stuff he's got and the goal of the pleasure that it can bring you when you revel in it, to eat, drink, be merry. What this man was experiencing is really the dream of the typical person among us, that is, in your career, earn as much as you can possibly earn, save a great deal of it, and then to spend the rest of your life in ease and all the physical pleasure possible. But how did the Lord view this man whose barns were bulging and he thought about building new ones to hold even more? In verse 20, it says that God said to him, 
You're a fool. This very night, your soul is required of you. And then whose will all these things be that you have prepared? You may not know much about Tutankhamun. He was a pharaoh in the 14th century B.C. His was the only tomb that was never broken into and looted. So when Sir Howard Carter opened it up in 1922, there was millions of dollars worth of gold and jewels and valuable stuff there. It was buried with King Tut, but he never used it after he died. It was there for Howard Carter to pull out and put in museums all over the world. Have you ever noticed how quiet and still it is in a cemetery? The residents there do not revel and frolic, and they're not down in their graves counting their treasures. In Luke 12, 15 in the King James, Jesus says, a man's life does not consist in the abundance of that which he possesses. And later there in verse 23, he added that life is more than food and the body than clothing. God put the good things of this world here for us to enjoy, to make our lives reasonably pleasant. He created them. He put them here. He made it for us. But he meant that there are all ways to be secondary. Primary is to be heavenly-oriented lives. What does that mean? A life that's lived with your eye on heaven. Folks, in my prayers, every morning I ask the Lord to orient my life for the day toward heaven beyond the place and the time that I am in here. But it's the work of the devil to make us ignorant of reality and to reverse that order that's God's will. He wants to put us to put the enjoyment of the world first and serve God second. Or in most cases, with most people, not serving him at all. So suppose there's a Titans game. I don't know what time they start. But to get there and get a good seat, you have to miss church on Sunday morning. So what's first in your life? The Titans game or being here at church with God's people? And when he said two or more gathered together in my midst, there I am with them. He's not at the Titans game. He's here. Now, it doesn't have to be the Titans game. It could be any other fun venue. But it's something for us to accept as a challenge to ourselves. What are my priorities? Am I under or in the thrall of the devil's ignorance to where I can't see putting him first always without exception is most important? Or trying to enjoy all we can in life as of first importance.